This is the Depth and Light Podcast. I'm your host, J.D. Pirtle. In this episode, we'll return to the Electronic Visualization Lab in Chicago for part two of this story. In part one, we sit down with Professor Dan Sandine. Dan described the founding of the Electronic Visualization Lab, or EVL. He also detailed the Sandine image processor and the Cave Virtual Reality System. The original Cave Virtual Reality System was a huge success. Head-mounted virtual reality systems, or HMDs, were the dominant VR method of that time, but they struggled with numerous technical issues which made them often unpleasant to use. And they didn't support shared VR experiences. But the cave was different. A cave could house several participants and didn't cause motion sickness like many head-mounted displays did. Cave VR systems continue to be used worldwide today. But the students, faculty, and staff of EVL have never been the type to stand there and admire their accomplishments. They always look to the technological horizon. For the next two decades after the release of the original cave, EVL continued to produce pioneering inventions in ultra-high-speed research networks and interactivity. Turning away from projector-based visualization technology, EVL created a series of high-resolution tiled display walls. These walls were not comprised of commercial TVs, but rather high-grade displays. They combined these displays with novel interaction, such as haptic interfaces, which enabled the user to feel 3D virtual objects. They also pioneered early touchscreen technology. In the era before touchscreens were ubiquitous, which is hard to imagine considering the wide proliferation of phones and tablets, EVL was creating touchscreen desks and even huge touchscreen walls. EVL created a variety of devices which furthered scientific discovery and artistic expression in every combination of the two. Many people have worked at EVL, taught there, and graduated with bachelor's, master's, and PhDs. But few have had the impact Maxine Brown has. She is the current director of EVL and has been a driving force behind many of the lab's successes since she joined EVL in 1987. Maxine has won numerous awards for her research and has been very active in conferences like SIGGRAPH, IEEE, and many others. Maxine and I recently sat down to talk about her background in EVL in the 1980s, 90s, and beyond. So Maxine, can you tell us a little bit about your background, what you were doing before you came to EVL? So I have a master's degree in computer science, and uh, my master's thesis back in the 70s had to do with applying computer science to dance and dance notation languages. So it actually was a computer graphics thesis. So I um, loved technology and art. I ended up at a job at Hewlett Packard. I was writing microprocessor code, but they finally decided to build a graphics terminal, and I got to do some computer graphics. Then I went off to uh, San Diego to the first company that actually did business graphics in the early 80s. This is before there were PCs and before there was Excel. Mm -hmm. It was business graphics that ran on mainframes. 
I left San Diego and ended up in Hollywood for a few years and worked for a company called Digital Productions that did special effects for feature films. And then I consulted for a few years with other companies until Tom DeFonte offered me a job here at the Electronic Visualization Laboratory. And I had known this lab because I was very active in SIGGRAPH for many years. And I had visited this lab, and I thought what a phenomenal opportunity to work with technology and art. So I came, and I've been here for over 30 years. Wow, amazing. So backing up a little bit, which uh, feature films did you work on when you were doing those graphics projects? So while I was, in my, in my earlier career, I was a programmer, but I ended up being very good at documentation. Mm-hmm. So I... Um, well, I was hired by Digital Productions to be director of documentation and document the code, the software they were writing. It was all proprietary software in those days. So while I was there, they worked on a movie called The Last Starfighter. Mm-hmm. And also they started working on 2010, the mm-hmm. special effects of the planet Jupiter. Oh, well, okay. So instead of like the slit, slit scan stuff that Douglas Trumbull was doing for the first one, you guys were starting to do more computer graphics. It was, all, it was all special effects in those days. And the digital productions was started by uh, two guys who work for a company called III or Information International Incorporated that was the lead developer of the computer graphics for Tron. Mm-hmm. So they, uh, they wanted to do more high-resolution, more... Um, detailed uh, special effects and objects. So they went out and bought a Cray supercomputer Hmm. to do special effects for Hollywood. Um, So I was documenting the software that they were developing, but I worked with all the coders that were actually writing the code and being technical directors, working with the the people from Hollywood to turn their ideas into computer-generated objects. So what was EVL like when you arrived? What year was that, and and what what did you find here when you came to work? I arrived here in 1986, although I had known the lab since 1977. So Mm -hmm. uh, this lab was very small, had about uh, 12 to 18 students. Half were art and half were computer science. Uh, In those days, the art program was actually more well-known and... um, of importance than even the computer science program because technical artists had very little recourse on where they could go study technology applied to the arts. So videos, uh, videotaping was a big deal. And mm-hmm. so they wanted to learn more about videos. They, the, we had one art student that could program a connection machine, which was a supercomputer. And uh, so he came here because even though we didn't have a supercomputer, we still were affiliated with supercomputing centers and we were still doing more advanced technology development that he could do for his art. Mm-hmm. So uh, I found a very small lab, um, very very little funding, and uh, I arrived just in time f- uh, to help develop a big show at the Museum of Science and Industry called The Interactive Image. Mm-hmm. And I started documenting all the things we were going to do for that show, and all of a sudden the university took notice and they said, oh, this is what you do, because mm-hmm. EVL was not understood, I would say, by a lot of the administrators here because they 
there was very little documentation coming out of it. Lots of mm-hmm. videotapes, but that's not what administrators look at. Right. Or interactive experiences or PCs, but not what administrators understand. So um, then we started writing grant proposals, and we started to get a lot of funding. Sure. So uh, over the years, where have these artists, these MFA um recipients from EVL, what have they gone on to do? Just get some examples, if you can think of some. So a lot, a lot of them became teachers mm-hmm. and, uh, again, applying technology to the arts. But one of our MFAs is, works for NASA, and some went to work for Argonne National Laboratory or other national laboratories because they were so technical uh, that they could apply they could do the technology job. Uh, another one went to work for uh, hardware developers. In the old days, there was a company called Evans and Sutherland, and she mm-hmm. was a developer there uh, because even though she had an art background, she was heavy on the technology. Mm-hmm. And some have gone to like Pixar and other big studios. So today, a lot of our students have gone both art and tech computer science students have gone on to the Hollywood arena, to Pixar, uh, Digital Domain, um, uh, Industrial Light and Magic, Weta. So, in fact, one of our art students is a big manager at Weta, hired a few of the other EVL students as they graduated. That's great. Um, And so now you're the director of the lab. What, What do you do in this role? So my primary job is to help with fundraising and um, be project manager of some of the research that we do. I still wear my old hat, which was promotion and publicity um, and uh, interaction with other people on campus. Um, And so uh, I keep myself pretty busy. But But I consider one of my most important tasks is also to keep the culture of this lab Mm -hmm. and to have art and science uh, blend together. Now, we've we've actually increased it. Even uh, for the last 40-some years of the lab, we didn't just work with artists. Mm -hmm. Uh, When uh, the original computer science co-founder of EVL was hired, he actually was teaching chemists how to use computer graphics as well. Right. And, and our art professor, Dan Sandine, was actually trained as a physicist. So it, EVL, it, the goal is interdisciplinary, not just art and science, but sure. it's art, science, and technology. Today, we don't have a, a large number of artists in the lab, and we miss that because mm-hmm. the, they add value primarily as at the user interface level at, at, at human computer design. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have design faculty that are involved in the lab, and we do have now computer science faculty that specialize in HCI, mm-hmm. but they are more looking at usability studies than actually how do people think and react and how will they react to this software program. So uh, I think we were always conscious of the user and that uh, so we could make usable and useful products um, Mm -hmm. for them. And so this lab was unusual because we actually made software that we distributed, we um, supported, we um, documented, 
and very few labs. It's a, it's a feasibility study. It works. Mm -hmm. Go on to the next thing. So sure. we've actually carried things through because we really believed in having a user in having user communities, and I think that was generated because of the arts part of this program. Sure. Um, so what is EVL working on right now that you're excited about? So we've got a couple projects. We still are working on um, software that we call Sage that mm -hmm. is a way of enabling people to use large tile displays and manage lots of information in one place as though they have a gigantic laptop screen mm -hmm. and also share that information over networks. We don't just don't focus on just computers here. We look at the whole system and we look at a human-centered system where the user can control parts of the computers, the networks, the displays, mm -hmm. the, um, uh, the, the laptops in order to do what, get the information that they want to get. Uh, we also are involved, like the rest of the world, artificial intelligence is big. Mm -hmm. So we just got a grant a year ago to buy a large computer for deep learning and visualization that uh, will be used by the College of Engineering here at UIC. Uh, UIC recognizes that we are technology enablers, that we can create these systems and uh, deploy them to end users, even though we're a research lab, we're not a production facility. So to make life interesting for us, we focused on a new kind of computer architecture called composable infrastructure. So we get to learn something um, ad more advanced about the system, and uh, but we are just putting in a purchase order after doing a lot of testing and uh, talking with vendors, and uh, so we hope to be up and running in a couple months. And so the kind of the lay definition of composable computing, as I understand it, is that a user or a group of users can just kind of grab what they need from the system instead of taking over the whole cluster of computers. They can they can kind of grab the, the resources they need and use just those. Right. So in a normal cluster, it's like um, a piece of pie. You come along and you need a certain size of compute. Uh, a certain number of computing processors. Mm -hmm. So you get a wedge, and you'll get everything that's part of that wedge. You'll get X amount of storage, X amount of graphics cards, mm -hmm. X amount of networking. You get a wedge of the pie. In composable infrastructure, if you just need a certain amount of computing units, you just get that. Right. And you don't and the rest of the pool of resources can be devoted to somebody else's job so that you use the technology more efficiently than the way clusters are designed. That's how I understand it. In 2012, EVL released another phenomenal virtual reality invention. Cave 2 continues the trajectory of the original Cave system, but with state-of-the-art software, hardware, and interactivity. In its original form, Cave 2 consisted of 72 stereoscopic 3D displays, 36 computers, 22 speakers, 10 tracking cameras, and a 100 gigabit per second internet connection. If you're standing in the center of Cave 2, you're surrounded by a vast cylinder of TVs, a cylinder 24 feet in diameter and 8 feet tall. There's a break in this cylinder of displays that allows users to enter and exit. Users wear passive polarized 3D glasses, the kind you'd find in a 3D movie. 
and like the original cave, one user is being tracked at all times. The main user can interact with content running in Cave 2 with a modified video game controller, while the others standing near them experience the same thing. Users can fly through the geography of Mars, through vascular systems, and even through a two-scale model of Star Trek's Enterprise created by PhD student Arthur Nishimoto. Victor Matavizzi is a PhD graduate who started EVL the same year I did. Victor was one of many students, faculty, and staff who created Cave 2. I called Victor recently to catch up and see what he's been doing since he left EVL. We also talked about the work he did while a student there, starting with Cave 2. Alessandro Febretti, another student of EVL, he was working on the software framework that's going to run Cave 2. Um, and he, you know, in his initial experiments, he had one screen, then he had the two screens, and then he kind of scaled that up until uh, he went all the way to 72 screens. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I worked on the... Um, uh, I worked on a lot, a lot uh, on two things. One of them would would be plugins. So, for instance, having the ability of uh, rendering um, terrain on the cave, mm-hmm. um, and I also worked on interactivity. So, connecting connects um, one or more, so you can interact with the uh, with a three D world around you. Sure. So, I wonder if you can describe Cave Two for the listeners. Cave two. Um, so in the initial state, you know, we knew that we want to build this cylinder with seventy-two screens. We had the the design, the hardware design. We were kind of like waiting for equipment. Um, so we started working on the software, and initially it was just, you know, we have one screen, um, and now we have two screens. Uh, can we um, can we render can we render on two screens the content that we have to render? Um, but then as you move and add more screens, now you also need more, more computers. So now I have two computers that they need to talk to each other and synchronize the frames. Um, because if you're seeing any any content in 3D as you're moving or as the content is moving, um, you know, the screens have to be synchronized. Um, so I think that, that was one of the big challenges that uh, Alessandro worked on. How do I have 36 computers that um, will talk to each other and will render frame by frame, frame synchronized, uh, the whole thing? And then, you know, adding audio. How do I do audio uh, in a way that sync with video? Um, so the Cave 2 consists of 72 screens, 36 computers, and I think we had but we had about 22 speakers and two subwoofers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another thing that Alessandro worked on, um, and I kind of helped, but he was the main developer, was the ability of writing the software, writing and testing the software on your uh, laptop, um, so you don't take uh, time off the cave. You can imagine this is a you know, big system. If 10 mm-hmm. people are developing applications for the cave, um, it's a resource which, um, you know, it's going to be very busy. So it's a lot easier if you actually develop on your computer and then you go on the cave and, uh, on the cave and just test out your, your final uh, app. Um, so he did that and then he also added um, Python support. So uh, now just with the scripting language, you can very quickly write your own visualization and run it. So the Python layer kind of sits on top of C++ that was actually driving the system? That is correct, yes. Um, so, you know, backing up from Cave 2 a little bit, so what was it, the experience like being a student, like being a PhD student at EVL? I mean, you know, being a master's student there, I felt very supported, like it was like a family. Um, what was your experience like being a PhD student there for so long? I mean, it's the same experience, honestly. Um, it kind of feels like family. Um, 
your mentor is very close to you and you know they uh, your mentor always helps you out with the problems that you have one thing that really to me was amazing is the fact that the moment I joined DVL I got a key and you know I had 24 ac- 24 hour access to the uh, lab which was amazing um, you know Saturdays Sundays whenever I, I wanted to I could go and the entire environment was so fun that uh, initially I would leave the lab at around 4 or 5 a.m. every day because, you know, you you um, you get access to the cave too and all those toys um, and only your imagination is the limit um, mm-hmm. and you can play with them, you can code, you can write apps, you can write games, you can do whatever you want and nobody's going to stop you. Nobody's going to say, no, you shouldn't be allowed to do this or you should be allowed to do that. Um, so that was very exciting to me, you know, the the fact that um, it's probably, you know, as a PhD student, it's probably the only time in your life where you are allowed to do whatever you want. You are allowed, and not only you are allowed, but you should you should explore as many things as possible, and you should play with all those things um, because you won't have the time. Once you go uh, in in the industry, you know there are projects, there are deadlines, um, and other people are giving you the direction. However, as mm-hmm. a PhD student, you're kind of driving and you are deciding where you're going to go. So I think that was very exciting to me. In 2012, Dr. Jason Lee, Director Emeritus of EVL, and two other professors created a new course called Human Augmentics. The goal of this new area of research is to extend human ability through wearable technology and interactive software. Many people have argued that we're already cyborgs, pointing to our relationship with our phones, fitness trackers, and embedded computing in our smart home components. Human Augmentics would take that many steps further. Victor was one of the first students in that program. Victor and the students working in his group created early prototypes of what would become known as the SpiderSense suit. The suit enables a user to navigate a physical space without the use of vision. Blindfolded users feel vibrations in whatever area the sensors embedded in the suit detect motion or stationary objects, allowing them to locate things in space without sight. So can you tell us a little bit about how Human Augmentics, the class, started and um, kind of what, how your, your project developed from there? Yeah, so we were having discussions with uh, Jason Lee about um, human augmentation in general and what does it mean um, and kind of like discussing about the future and how uh, technology and humans are, are getting closer and closer. Um, and then Jason kind of decided to um, start this new research field named Human Augmentics. And then he, uh, he Bob Kenyon and, and Steve Jones joined, joined him. Um, and initially as a pilot, they made the Human Augmentics class. And I, I took that class um, kind of like uh, first generation, let's say. Um, and that's that's how everything kind of began. And you know, as a as a pilot, they decided to allow the students to be creative and and kind of like um, propose their own projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the the directions were very vague. It was you know, we're doing human augmentics. We want to augment humans using technology. Um, come up with something that will uh, augment you as a human. Uh, so then, how did uh, SpiderSense evolve from that project, or and what can you tell us about the beginning of SpiderSense? Jason and Steve and Bob, um, they have some project categories, and one of them was named SpiderSense. Now, this one was very vague. So he said, they they said, um, build something that can um, build basically SpiderSense, something that can feel the environment. 
we went back and, and we said, okay, so what is PyTherSense? What does it mean to be augmented? What does it mean, you know, to like, what what are we gonna, going to build? And there was a lot of talk about um, health, a lot of talk about building devices that automatically kind of like uh, recognize what you do and then they, they pursue, persuade you to become healthier. And I was in a team with uh, Brad Hagadon and uh, Brian Kunzer. Um, and our first, our initial idea for SpiderSense was an app that um, as you have your phone uh, in your pocket, you kind of like run around and then it monitors what you do and it's a game. So the more uh, active you are, the more points you gain. And it was all about making you more active. So mm -hmm. we go, we present this SpiderSense idea and we're very proud of it. We have been working on it for like, you know, weeks. And uh, the the professors they they look at us and they completely shut it down. They mm -hmm. go like, "Why is this spider sense? You know, this is not what we asked for. This is not a human augmented device." And um, you know, all the other teams they got their projects accepted, and we were the only ones who had to go back and kind of like throw everything away and rethink everything from scratch. And initially, mm -hmm. honestly, we're very pissed because we put a lot of effort into that. Uh, but we kind of went back and we said, okay, we have to think about this again. Um, and that's, you know, we, we had like a brainstorming session again. And, you know, uh, if you have read the book, um, uh, Still Like an Artist, mm -hmm. we kind of combined previous ideas. We did not, it wasn't like a light bulb. Um, I mean, it was a light bulb, but it wasn't like, oh, suddenly somebody thought about SpiderSense. So there was this idea that somebody else has developed where um, they um, made a glove that vibrates. So as you move it around, you can feel the environment around you. Mm -hmm. And uh, we looked at that and we said, well, what if we take that and we expand it to the entire body? So now as you're moving, your entire body vibrates. And depending on the location of vi vibration, for instance, if there's vibration in your back, then somebody's behind you. And mm -hmm. then what if we do it not only 360 degrees, but we also give height. So we have these sensors at different high locations. So like uh, you're gonna have one, um, you know, low, lower limbs, like uh, lower legs, and then, um, and then higher up. And I think we made like three or four different um, uh, height, height sensors. Um, so that's how SpiderSense came about. And then we, we, we went back, we presented the new idea and uh, they liked it a lot. So how did it kind of go from class project? Yes, you're a PhD student doing this in a premier laboratory, but how did it go from a class project into what it is today? So I definitely was not prepared for uh, the things that followed. It wasn't planned or it wasn't, you know, I wasn't looking for um, the press. That uh, and the and the attention that the project got. So once the project ended, we kind of wrote our final project report, and then um, we submitted to the Augmented Human Conference a paper with our results, and mm -hmm. then that was accepted. And even before going to the conference, you know, once they uh, kind of like announced the titles of the papers that got accepted, um, I think the paper wasn't even out. It was just the title of the paper, which was "Sensing the Environment Through Spider Sense." You know, reporters always check those conferences and they kind of look for things to write. So a reporter from New Scientist, um, uh, he contacted me just to ask a bit more information about the project because he found the name, you know, interesting. Um, so once I explained what this project is about, he's like, I want to write an article about this. So I gave an interview. Um, he wrote an article. And once that article was published, um, 
so even before the conference presentation, that went viral. So immediately, you know, Gizmodo, Kotaku, and Gadget, um, mm-hmm. Wired Magazine, like everybody, everybody, Forbes, everybody wrote about it. Um, you know, my 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 personal website, I think it crashed that day. <laughs> so many people were kind of like uh, going in the website and reading about the project. I was actually glad that I had a website. <laughs> At least I was prepared on that end. Mm-hmm. Um and then, you know, uh, then obviously um, Discovery Channel um, and some other TV stations, they contacted me because they wanted to actually see Spider-Sense in action and, and kind of like have it on their TV show. So then I did that uh, with a few TV shows. Um, but it's one of those things that it happened, you know, um, this is 2011, I think. So it's been a while. And even today, I'm still getting emails, like just... One, one year ago, I was in Denmark, mm-hmm. um, and, and again, we, we did like a TV show um, where they, they made a TV show about uh, super, superhuman abilities and technologies. So mm-hmm. I did that. So that was how uh, kind of like initially uh, Spider-Sense went viral. Um, and then I continued working on Spider-Sense. So I had like, um, so the initial version was bulky and the sensors, like I said, were laser cut. Um, then I made a second version based on the feedback that I got from uh, the original version. So the original mm-hmm. version was me, Brad, and Brian. And then they kind of, you know, Brad graduated. Brian did his own research. So I, I was the one who continued work on this. So for the second version, uh, I actually made the jacket. I made mm-hmm. everything smaller and I embedded all the electronics into the jacket. Um, and then I had the third version. I think it's the second version you've seen, but you haven't seen the third version. The mm-hmm. third version was for my thesis. Um, and that one, you know, I looked I looked at into vibration patterns and how do we map the environment around us into vibration. And I use mm-hmm. VR. So that it was pretty cool because um, the difficulty with Spider-Sense 1 and 2 was the fact that if you wanted to test Spider-Sense, you actually had to construct a physical space that you can move in. And mm-hmm. then you have to blindfold people. But that now if you have bl- people blindfolded, um, you have to be very careful they don't get hurt, especially if you mm-hmm. want to start testing obstacles and those types of things. Then there are there is a problem of tracking. How do you track them so you can analyze their movement and kind of like work on the sensors? Um, so for all those reasons, um, the third version of Spider-Sense, it's completely in VR. So all these obstacles and walls and, and, um, uh, and mazes that I, I constructed were virtual. Mm-hmm. Um, so now you you know you're safe, and I can dynamically change the environment and kind of like test everything that I wanted to test. Um, so yeah, so that's how you know my thesis came about. Um, and then about two years ago, the Museum of Science and Industry, you know, one of the biggest uh, museum of science and industry in the world, uh, they wanted to make this new exhibit named uh, Wire to Wear, and they wanted to showcase all the technologies. Um, that uh, people are wearing on their bodies. Uh, and, you know, they heard about Spider-Sense and they wanted to have Spider-Sense um, in the exhibit. Um, mm-hmm. So I went, we had a meeting and, you know, initially they said we want Spider-Sense 1 and 2. We we want that for sure. But we also want to make an interactive piece, something that people can actually wear and they can uh, walk in a small maze. So I work with them and I work with Quantum. Um, it's a technology company. Mm-hmm. Uh, they make, they know how to make things for museums that don't break. So we kind of like collaborated together and we made uh, a museum spider sense piece 
which you can go and actually experience. So now you're going into the museum, there are two small rooms and you can wear like a smaller version of Spider-Sense um, and you can walk around and you can feel that. So that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, in that exhibit, you know, you're going to see things like uh, Nike's self-lacing shoes. Uh, you're going to see... Um, um, a, a jet uh, a jet suit um, um, and there are some other uh, super cool things like electronic tattoos that you touch and they make sounds or they they um, they uh, light up mm-hmm. uh, and you also have obviously Google's uh, project uh, Jacquard too wow so what's the future of spider sense I mean obviously that 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 um exhibition just kind of blew up also it was everywhere not just in chicago i saw it everywhere online and um so what's the future of spider since now um i'm still working uh kind of like part-time on spider sense um so if we break down the the wearable let's say field right now um we are in a spot where um there are some major breakthroughs that need to happen um, so that we can have electronics embedded into our clothing. And they're happening every day. You know, you can now buy, Nike has new shoes which are self-lacing. Um, and then we have Google who just announced like a new collaboration with a backpack. Um, the three uh, big kind of like breakthroughs that need to happen are first of all battery technology so making batteries smaller and easier to embed into clothing um, so you, so that you can wash you can wash the clothes without having to take out the battery pack the second is flexible electronics so how can you embed electronics into the clothing mm-hmm. um, and the third one is threading so how do you thread once you put the electronics in the clothing how do you connect them right now we do it with wires uh, if you use like a conductive thread that's that's not good enough it's not um, it's it's difficult to um, to manipulate and, and put into clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm kind of like working on, um, with SpiderSense, I'm waiting so for some of those breakthroughs to kind of like catch up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, I'm kind of working on making it even smaller, working on some of the uh, sensors that SpiderSense currently has, you know, like right today, for instance, um, if you're wearing the jacket and, um, it's snowing outside and you have to wear something on top of the jacket, mm-hmm. um, the sensor, sensors are not, are not gonna work because they're being blocked. So kind of like working on sure. how can I make them so that uh, you can wear whatever you want on top or how can I make those sensors so uh, they're kind of like independent on the clothing so you can wear whatever clothes you want. Um, and then also working on the vibration. So how do I notify the user about uh, incoming objects or objects around them? How do I create that haptic language? Oh yeah, and then I guess people have to kind of learn the vocabulary. So this is like Spider Sense is a major side hustle right now. What else are you doing? What are you doing as your main as your main job post PhD? Post PhD, yeah. So uh, my main job right, right now is I am um, a human computer interaction research scientist at a company named GN. Mm-hmm. Uh, GN as a name might not. It's not so popular, but the company has been around for 150 years. Wow. Uh, fun fact, uh, they used to make initially cables for Telegraph. And mm-hmm. it was the first company that connected Europe with China and Russia using Telegraph. Wow. Um, so what they're doing today, what we're doing today is we're doing everything in audio. So for instance, Jabra, it's one of our portfolio companies. Um, 
And um, I'm basically doing research on the audio domain and in human-computer interaction. So once you have hearing aids, once you have Jabra's, you know, how do you interact with them and kind of like looking forward five to 10 years, how how are those devices going to change? Um, mm-hmm. And what, what do we have to do as human-computer interaction scientists? What do we have to do to improve that collaboration between humans and those devices? So software, hardware you know sensors um interactions uh those those types of things so can you give us a glimpse i mean obviously apple airpods and like i know the jabra um in-ear bluetooth uh Air, airpods are very popular and some of the bose ones even the ones for sleep can you give us a glimpse of what's maybe down the road i mean i know a lot of this is like protected uh, intellectual property but is there any uh, hint of what's what's to come with this technology well, yeah, <laughs> not a lot of things that I can say, but I can talk about what's public. So think about this. Just in the in the past, you know, six months, we have Bose who has released um, the augmented reality uh, glass gla- glasses frames. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. seen those, mm-hmm. um, but um, have you used them? No, not yet. No. So you basically wear them and they beam sound into your ears. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you don't have to wear uh, earbuds anymore. So um, and then bone induction, or they're not. They do. Um, they they do have some bone induction, but they basically uh, have speakers and they're beaming sound into your oh, okay. uh, ears. Oh, focused. Yeah, yeah, like a focus beam. I, I believe they have some bone induction too, but um, yeah, um, they also have sensors on them, so like they know whether you're wearing them on or not. Mm-hmm. And they have uh, they connect the. Um, um, they connect with the phone and then, you know, they, they, they have like a, an augmented reality platform. So we have Bose. Uh, then we have Jabra that has um, the sports earbud. So it's not just about listening to music anymore. It's about kind of like tracking you as, a, mm-hmm. as an athlete or as a person. And mm-hmm. then now Amazon announced their own frames, glass, mm-hmm. glass, glass frames. Again, same sensors and augmented reality. They announced the earbuds, um, and then we have uh, who else? Um, so, you know, a, a lot of things are happening right now in this domain. So I cannot talk about what we're doing, but sure, uh, just by seeing what other people are doing, you, you kind of get an idea of where things are going to go. Thank you for listening to the second part of our story about the Electronic Visualization Lab. We'd like to thank Maxine Brown and Victor Matavitsi for taking the time to talk to us. If you like this or other episodes, please consider writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Depth and Light, check out our website at depthandlight.com. That's D-E-P-T-H-A-N-D-L-I-G-H-D.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter via the handle at depthandlight.